Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I then. What was happening 100 years ago this week? And it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is November 29th, 2017. Our guests this week include Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Jacqueline Farrow and Eddie Bullries from the Godfrey Triangle Restoration Committee in Springfield, Massachusetts the graphic novel team of Chegg Lowry and Rasan Ekadal, author and historian Christopher Kelly, and Catherine Akey, the show's line producer and the commission's social media director. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the chief technologist for the commission and your host. Welcome to the show. It's sometimes difficult in our media-overloaded, multifaceted, social and general media-inundated world not to get cynical. But in 1917, many people genuinely believed that they were answering to a higher calling. That makes Thanksgiving 1917, a hundred years ago this past week, an interesting moment of reflection for millions of Americans, both within our nation and those who found themselves over there. We're going to look at this, plus a series of other stories that occur as the American military finds itself on the precipice of major battle action. So let's jump into our Wayback Machine and see what was happening a hundred years ago this week in the war that changed the world. Thanksgiving, 1917. At home, President Wilson uses the official bulletin, the government's daily war gazette, published by George Creel, the head of America's propaganda machine, to get a short statement from each member of his cabinet. Dateline, November 28, 1917. The masthead of the official bulletin reads... Cheering Thanksgiving messages to Americans at home and fighting forces abroad from the President's Cabinet are in this issue. From William McAdoo, Secretary of the Treasury. For the first time in more than 50 years, Thanksgiving Day finds America at war. In this chaos of civilization, the power of America was needed to tip the scales in favor of freedom and democracy as against the enslavement of the world which would inevitably follow the triumph of military despotism. Terrible as war is, and fearful as are the sacrifices it entails, nothing is comparable to freedom and liberty. From Newton Baker, Secretary of War. I'm glad to take advantage of the opportunity which the official bulletin gives me to send a word of appreciation and good cheer from the men of the War Department who are in this country to the men who are now in France. We are striving our hardest to send them promptly and plentifully the material things they need as they take their stand by the side of the gallant men who for so long have been holding the battlefront for a world that shall look forward and not look backward. From Thomas Gregory, the Attorney General. 
Nearly a century and a half ago, our forefathers, hungry and poorly fed, clothed, disciplined, and armed, gave when they needed their all. For liberty to live undefiled by license that men are free and self-governed. They dreamed and labored so that real freedom and free institutions were born. Today you battle that these principles do not die, but may live on and reach untold millions who now live under the blight of despots. From Albert Burleson, Postmaster General. Our Thanksgiving holiday is like many other good things of New England origin. It came into the national use during the Civil War. The people of the United States, in celebration of this festival, now have special cause for returning thanks to the Almighty Ruler of the Universe for the many blessings He has showered upon us. While Europe, Asia, and Africa are ravaged by war, no foe has invaded our country, our cities have not been destroyed, and our people go about their business and live in peace, in plenty, and in security. After every honorable effort had been exhausted to avoid it, we were thrust into the world's war. In the name of allied nations, we have entered into the contest. We have met the crisis unselfishly, patriotically, and nobly. Today, our sons, true to the traditions, ideals, and standards of their heroic fathers, are mustering on the battlefields of Europe. From Franklin Lane, Secretary of the Interior. I cannot give thanks for war nor for the methods that men make war, nor for the turning of the minds of men from things constructive to things destructive. But I can give thanks that this nation is a nation unashamed, that the spirit of Bunker Hill and Santiago is still quick and aggressive, that men are willing to die that liberty and justice may live, that we are not to see the free people of the earth humiliated or crushed, that fear is not to master the world. From William Wilson, Secretary of Labor. I have traveled through the most diverse parts of the country and come in contact with every variety of our citizenship, the rich and the poor, those who have sprung from old English stock, as well as naturalized citizens who came to us from the different lands of Europe, including the Central Powers. In the midst of all this diversity of place and people, behind all differences, I find a common and complete devotion to this country and an unquestioning devotion to the aims of freedom and democracy, which are the purposes of the countries going to war. Meanwhile, in Europe, the U.S. Army tries to bring a bit of home to the boys. Dateline, November 29, 1917. Headline, a story in the New York Times. Cooks prepare feast for Pershing's men. Thanksgiving dinner expected to be the best ever served to an army on foreign soil. And the story reads, In every village in France where American troops are stationed, the company cooks started to make cranberry sauce and to lay out great piles of plump turkey, sweet potatoes, and everything else that goes to make a real Thanksgiving dinner. Thanksgiving Day for the American forces will be one of resting, eating, and recovering. After the dinner settles, there'll be real American doings, such as football games, in which some American stars who are there will play. But back on the fighting front. Early this month, in episode number 45, we told you the story of a company of American soldiers who were the first to contact the enemy. 
After months of waiting, American soldiers finally head to the front early in the month. It's a quiet area, but in the actual war zone. The Americans are essentially still training when they suddenly find themselves in an unintended engagement as the Germans attack. This week, the incident is in the news again as the French government endeavors to decorate 15 men of this unit. Dateline, November 27, 1917. Headline, from the pages of the New York Times. French decorate 15 of our troops. French war crosses conferred on men who met German trench raid on November 2nd, but told not to wear the medals. Recipients must wait until Congress authorizes them to accept honors from a foreign nation. The story in the Times includes... The French general, in referring to the actions of this American company, said, On the night of November 2nd, this company, which was in the line for the first time, met an extremely violent bombardment, despite which it seized arms and offered such stubborn resistance that the enemy, though numerically superior, was obliged to retire. Also this week, another group of Yankee doughboys find themselves in the fight again unintentionally, during the Battle of Cambrai. The 11th engineers are helping to build the rail system that's been transporting a new power weapon to the front in preparation for the British Cambrai campaign that was, for the first time, to make major use of the tank. Suddenly, near the town of Guzoku, the Germans counterattack, and the engineers find themselves in combat. The following is from an article printed in a UK magazine called I Was There. The author is Major General Seeley of the Canadian Cavalry Brigade as he describes the German counterattack at Cambrai around November 30th. I have to say that a good many stragglers from the battle gallantly came forward with me. Amongst others, we found a curious and most interesting party. American engineers, whom we had seen 12 days before, engaged in making a light railway some five miles behind the front lines. They were pursuing their peaceful avocation near Gozoku, which had been close to the front lines before our advance on November 21st. They belonged to the American 11th Engineers. A Colonel Hoffman was the regimental commander, and I think Captain Hulsant was commanding the party when the German advance fell upon them. Uh, some had rifles with them, and in the case of others, the rifles were far away, but that made no difference to these gallant Yankees. With spades and pickaxes, they fell upon the advancing Germans, and although many were knocked out, I am assured that they got the best of it in a hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was a brave thing to do, for surrender would have been easy and for once justifiable. When I came home on leave a month later, I gave some account of this at a luncheon given by Lord Beaverbrook. I do not know if this account has reached America from other sources, but I am glad to put it on the record now. So, by November of 1917, the Americans are mobilized. They've sent troops over there. They've been busy training and helping to build infrastructure, and they're beginning to engage the enemy, though not intentionally yet. None of this is deemed fast enough or big enough by the British, who warn that the pace and power projection of the Americans is crucial, but lacking, 100 years ago this month, in the war that changed the world. Tanks were to be a major strategic shift in the planning for the Battle of Cambrai. Nearly 500 were deployed for the campaign, but apparently they didn't come out of the gate quite as planned. 
Here to tell us about it is Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog. No, you're right about that, Teo. The headline reads, Are Tanks the Answer? The First Great Tank Battle of the War. For the British, another disappointment, tanks alone are not enough. And this is special to the Great War Project. There's no let-up in the battle for Camaray in northern France in these last days of November a century ago. At the same time, reports historian Martin Gilbert, the first snow fell, just one factor making it difficult to use tanks. The war of tank movement, Gilbert reports, was replaced by that of hand-to-hand fighting. The British had hoped, with nearly 500 tanks and more than 1,000 artillery pieces, that the battle for Cambrai would be a turning point, but it is not. Within two weeks, Rice historian Gilbert, it failed utterly to be the hoped-for turning point. The British send in tanks to seize the village of Fontaine on the road to Cambrai. It is a terrible and disastrous mistake. Thus did the combatants begin to understand the limits of tank warfare, writes Gilbert. Cambrai pointed the way to a new kind of war, observes historian Michael Nyberg, but also showed that tanks alone were not enough. Tanks were sent into the narrow streets for which they were quite unprepared, Gilbert writes. There was horrible slaughter in Fontaine, one tank officer reports. He had spent weeks planning the use of tanks in the battle, but had never tackled the subject of village fighting. It had never occurred to me, he reports, that our infantry commanders would thrust tanks into such places. A German officer sees the battle from his side. Armored vehicles have entered the village, he writes, and they can seize ground, but not hold it. Their movements are hemmed in on all sides, which certainly should have been obvious to the officers planning the attack. The terror they have spread amongst us disappears, the German officer writes. We get to know their weak spots. A ferocious passion for hunting them down is growing. Reports Gilbert, the Germans had discovered that individual hand grenades thrown on the top of the tanks or at their sides were ineffective. But if we tie several grenades to them explode beneath the tanks, the new weapon had found a new adversary. As a result, the fighting is at a standstill and the British command orders a halt in the combat. Cambrai, writes historian Gilbert, would remain in the unreachable distance. The Germans, though, have their own plans for Cambrai. The next day, they order a huge offensive. It begins with the German guns firing 16,000 shells, among them gas shells. Reports Gilbert, many British companies fought until every man was killed or wounded. Many British soldiers turned and fled. The German combination of gas, shells, and low-flying attack aircraft was as effective for the Germans as the tanks had been for the British. The British successfully regroup and hold the lines, but like so many other battles in this dreadful war, the casualties on both sides were crushing. 44,000 British and Canadian dead and wounded, a total of 53,000 on the German side. And that's the news this week from the Great War Project. For video about this week in World War I 100 years ago, and from a more European perspective, we recommend the Great War Channel on YouTube, hosted by Indy Nidell. Their episodes this week include The End of Passchendaele and Jagdkommandos, Austria-Hungary Special Forces, and Tank Corps Unleashed, The Battle of Cambrai, and finally, Dropping Bombs on Germany. Indy takes audience questions in an episode of Out of the Trenches. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. Now it's time to fast forward into the present to World War I Centennial News Now. This section's not about history, but rather it explores what's happening to commemorate the centennial of the war that changed the world. (laughs) 
in commission news. When Commission Chair Robert D'Alessandro retired from the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, it left a seat open for a new commissioner. So, last week, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi filled that seat with Commander Zoe Dunning, U.S. Navy retired of San Francisco. We welcome Commissioner Dunning, who is also our first commissioner from the West Coast. Read more about Commissioner Dunning by visiting the link in the podcast notes. In more commission news, on Tuesday, November 28th in Philadelphia, the U.S. Mint hosted a ceremonial coin strike event for the new 2018 World War I Centennial Silver Dollar. A distinguished group who were involved with the coin project were on hand, including congressional sponsors of the legislation that authorized the coin, and Don Everhart, legendary U.S. Mint coin engraver, Terry Hamby, the chair of our World War I Centennial Commission, and Gerald York, grandson of World War I hero Sergeant Alvin York. This commemorative coin, which will be produced in limited quantities and will be available for purchase from the Mint beginning in January 2018, will support our endeavors, with a surcharge on the sale of each coin that will go directly to help us honor, educate, and commemorate the centennial of World War I. You can learn more about it by going to www.cc.org coin or by following the link in the podcast notes. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore words and phrases that are rooted in the war. Fashion is not exactly top of mind when you're dodging shells, machine guns, and sleeping with rats in the trenches, but those very conditions lead to some pretty iconic and common contemporary fashion items. Two of these that are very much with us today were created to solve very practical issues. The first, of course, is mud, mud, mud everywhere. So get yourself a trench coat. Mud clung to the clothes in the trenches, caking and weighing men down. The traditional serge greatcoats of the French and the British armies were impractical in such conditions, so the lighter, more water-resistant trench coat was developed. Secondly, how the heck are you supposed to begin an attack on time, with everyone going over the top simultaneously, when your units are strung out over the horizontal miles of the trenches? Audio doesn't work very far because there's these big guns and shells exploding all over the place. And there's no internet or chat, and radio and telephones are large and clunky things. The answer? Create a fashion-forward, trench-adapted wristwatch for every officer and commander. No fumbling with the device in the pockets. It's right there and available. Oh, wait a minute. That's Apple's new pitch for their Generation 3 Apple Watch. Well, anyway, a hundred years ago, Especially with the development of tactics like creeping barrages, the precise synchronization between the artillery gunners and the infantry advancing just behind the barrage, coordinated timing became essential to a successful campaign. Though wristwatches existed in some fashion since the 1500s, the watches produced during the war were especially designed for the rigors of trench warfare, with luminous dials and unbreakable glass. Now, those luminous dials have a whole horror story attached to them as well. Check it out in the buzz section of episode 19 for a story about the radium girls. With a watch on nearly every commander, the whole division could synchronize their timepieces and be sure to jump off altogether. By the end of the war, almost all enlisted men wore a wristwatch, and after they were demobilized, the fashion soon caught on. Wristwatch and trench coat. Words for items with their roots in the trenches of World War I. See the podcast notes to learn more. 
Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. As you listen to our guests tell us about their project, remember that we're taking grant applications for the second round of awards. The deadline to submit your application is January 15, 2018. Go to www.cc.org slash 100 memorials to learn all about it. This week, we're profiling the Indian Orchard Godfrey Triangle Project in Springfield, Massachusetts. With us to tell us about the project are Jacqueline Farrow and Eddie Bullrice from the Godfrey Triangle Restoration Committee. So, Eddie, tell us a little bit about the Indian Orchard Heroes of World War I Memorial. It's, it's past, it's current, and its future role in your community. Well, it's been around since 1927. The women of uh, Indian Orchard raised the money after the war was over 10 years later to, to erect this memorial. Currently, it's been like 90 years, so like it's been worn out, and the fact that it was vandalized, we're trying to raise the money back to, to bring it back to what it was before and even better than what it was. And for the future of it, it's to like, for kids to know what veterans are about and why these war memorials are erected in the first place. Well, Eddie, like so many other 100-year-old memorials, your memorial is both weather-worn and, unfortunately, it was vandalized. Tell us about the eagle. Yeah, the eagle was taken in the 1990s. Probably someone stole it, which is a really bad problem because, the fact of the matter, these, these are war veterans who died for this country. And I, I believe in my whole heart that it's the right thing to do for this, for this city and, and for this neighborhood, as a matter of fact. It's, like, it's a place where people can go and remember their family members and, and stuff like that. So the memorials in the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, is Indian Orchard a neighborhood? Yes, it is, sir. It's one of 17. Hey, Jacqueline, in March, you held a fundraiser with the Indian Orchard American Legion Post 277 Ladies Auxiliary. How'd that go? Uh, It had come about because uh, a mutual friend was just an avid person who had been fundraising for the Godfrey Triangle for quite some time. So when we started fundraising at the Indian Orchard Citizen Council or were considering fundraising and specific grants in the area, we did reach out to the Women's Auxiliary because we had known of, of some fundraisers that they had had and see if they wanted to join forces. And uh, we had roughly $2,000 and they have $1,900 and they agreed when we moved forward with this plan that they would make those funds available to us. Um, as far as fundraising, we are going to do a um, 100-year anniversary Godfrey Triangle celebration at the Godfrey Triangle, and then we're going to have a dinner afterwards. That's going to be on Wednesday, May 23rd, 2018, and it's a project that we're actively working on together once again to, to raise funds for revitalizing this monument. So, Jacqueline, do you guys know about the Poppy Seed Program? No, we don't. Okay, go to www.cc.org slash poppy. We've put together a, a fundraising mechanism for folks like yourself where you basically can get the poppy seeds uh, really inexpensively. They're, they're packaged and prepackaged World War I poppy seeds. You, you, you get them for a buck, you sell them for two or three, and you keep the money. So take a look at that. It's www.cc.org slash poppy. Might help you. Uh, poppy. Okay, that's great information. Thanks. I appreciate that. Eddie, your project was submitted in round one and has continued on to round two of the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project. 
Now, what would you say directly to the selection committee about why this project should be selected over the others? Well, I think for the fact that Matter Yankee Division is pretty unique. It was the first division in this nation's history to be awarded the highest award from the French government for the bravery of these men. I mean, that says for itself that uh, everybody sacrificed in World War One, but these men who died so bravely, I, I really think they should be known. You know, people should should know that there's a memorial in Indian Orchard for these for these brave people who sacrificed for our freedom. We're working on trying to get everybody like, educated about this, this war memorial. A lot of people are new to this neighborhood. Some people have been living here for generations. Um, some people know the history of it. Some people don't. That's why we're trying to get, get the word out about this and restoring it. Because the fact of the matter is our future, you know, time repeats itself. So if we don't, we don't teach our, our children about these things, it, it, it might repeat itself. Well, thank you both. Okay, thank you very much. Jacqueline Farrow and Eddie Bullrice are from the Indian Orchards Citizens Council in Springfield, Massachusetts. If you have a local project that you want to submit for a grant, go to www.cc.org slash 100 memorials or follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more about how to participate in the program. In our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, this week's post is a perfect dovetail to our weekly 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment. The title reads, Forgetting to Remember, Making America's Great War Monumental Again. As the new National World War I Memorial materializes in Washington, D.C., we want to look at other war memorials and the narrative of their construction. Reading the story of the way the memorials are conceived plays an important role in the understanding of public cultural memory. You can delve into the subject with this week's blog post written by World War I Centennial Commission intern Sarah Beagleson. Read about some of America's interesting World War I monuments and their stories by visiting www.cc.org slash W-W-R-I-T-E or by following the link in the podcast notes. For our first Spotlight in the Media segment this week, we're speaking with Chegg Lowry and Rasan Ekendal, the author and artist for a graphic novel, Soldiers Unknown, which tells the story of Yurok soldiers, Native Americans who were part of the 91st Infantry Division in World War I. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. This first question's to you, Chegg. To start, can you tell us a little bit about the Yurok people and what drew you to the story of the 91st Infantry Division? I am of Yurok native ancestry on my mother's side. We are from the northwestern part of California along the Klamath River and in the Redwoods. And I had two great, great uncles who served in the 91st Infantry Division in the war. And I uh, wrote a couple of other books on native veterans of World War II and the Korean War. And a lot of the men who I interviewed would tell me, oh, their father, or they had an older brother that served in World War One." So that's where I first started to learn about stories of Yurok and other Native veterans. And they shared a lot of photographs of these men in their uniforms with me. And so it always uh, stayed in my mind uh, how to try to respectfully convey uh, their stories and their history. I was very blessed to be able to meet Rasan Ekadal at a Comic-Con 
and he drew an image of Sergeant Rock for me, which is a DC comic character, a war comic character. And he did it with such detail. It was so awesome because there was like a thousand people walking around. It was so loud in that uh, convention hall. And he was also chatting with me. And I still have that uh, image that he created. And that's how we met. That was the best thing I drew at that convention, too. I can tell you that. <laughs> so what made you decide that a graphic novel was the best way to tell the story? It's a good question. You know, the graphic novel is being treated, I think, with more respect in today's society as a potential uh, learning tool. Uh, it's also, I mean, everyone loves comics, and young people are drawn to comics and to imagery. And I always thought of Rassan because he can convey emotion in such powerful ways with his art. And the emotions of generations of my Native people who have been in combat starting in World War One and then all the way up to the present day conflicts is something that most people are completely unaware of, the emotions and the sacrifices. And so that is what Rassan is providing, you know, when people will see his images, this World War I story, which is basically historical fiction, because I did a lot of research on the 91st Infantry Division, where those soldiers went in the Meuse-Argonne battle. And it's really going to be the first time, I think, for most readers to view a war story through the lens of Native American soldiers. I understand. The Native American commitment to serving is huge. Probably as a community, the largest percentage of veterancy of any ethnic group in the country. Rasan, as the artist, what did you find is the biggest challenge with doing the illustrations? For me, of course, there are challenges in terms of like getting historical details right, like, you know, making sure the uniforms are correct or that it's the right weapon for the right month of the war and all that stuff like that. But um, for me, it's most challenging to represent Yurok culture with accuracy and respect. It's really a great honor for me to be invited into a very private and special place and asked to depict Yurok imagery that people have never seen before, like Chag mentioned. So I'm really trying to do that justice. And that I'm always sending Chag stuff like, is this okay to get it right? And sitting there sweating, waiting for him to respond. <laughs> That's what keeps me up at night. Chag, did you have experts on your side to consult with you? For the Yurok imagery, uh, I mean, I have my family. You know, I just, I don't believe in coincidence in life. Uh, I can't conceive of anyone else other than Rasan being able to accurately and respectfully and lovingly convey these images of Yurok soldiers. And these were young boys, right? These were 18, 19, 20-year-old boys who were thrust into this war half a world away. They were living in traditional villages at that time, our Yurok people. And Rasan is showing a side of our people's history and our legacy. That's why I titled the book, It's Soldiers Unknown, because it's not just the individual, but it's most Native soldiers, the stories, or Marines, or sailors from World War I, they're completely unknown. The images are not in the public consciousness. What a great project. So where will I be able to get the book, and when is it coming out? The book is being published by Heyday, and it will be out by uh, early summer of 2018. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in. Yes, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much.
it is a really special book and uh, really looking forward to bringing it out for people to see finally. Jake Lowry and Rasan Ekendal, creators of the graphic novel Soldiers Unknown. You can learn more by following the link in the podcast notes. In another Spotlight in the Media segment this week, we're speaking with Christopher Kelly, an American historian writer based in Seattle and London, and editor of An Adventure in 1914, the true story of an American family's journey on the brink of World War I. Welcome, Chris. Great to be with you. Okay, Chris, this book is, in fact, a memoir that you edited. Tell us a little bit about the man whose memoir it is, Thomas Tylston Wells. Yes, Thomas Wells was my great-grandfather. He was a lawyer from New York, and he was born in 1865, died in 1946. Uh, And it's interesting that this book appeared 70 years after his death which is you know somewhat unusual and he and he titled it an adventure in 1914 his experiences on the brink of world war one now chris you've written and co-written a number of other books but came to this one as an editor what kind of work is done by an editor of a pre-existing text like this one we tried to be as faithful to his original intent as possible. We tried to make as few changes as possible. I mean, there were some changes of spelling. I mean, he spelled the country Serbia with a V uh, instead of a B. So we just updated things like that. But aside from that, there was the kind of the journey of discovery of retracing his steps because I went in the steps, footsteps of my great-grandfather on his voyage through Europe at the start of World War One, And I took photography along the way to try to bring it home to readers of what he might have seen and or what it looks like today as well, kind of charting the map of his adventure. Okay, Chris, what's the story actually about? Well, he was traveling as a tourist going through Europe in the summer of 1914. And while he was literally on board the ship going across the Atlantic was when you had the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife in Sarajevo, which was the catalyst for the beginning of the the war. But it didn't start immediately. And he was on a pleasure trip, a holiday, traveling through Switzerland and Austria from Paris. And he bought a, a return ticket, which was no longer valid because all of the trains were being used for the mobilization of troops. So he kind of got stuck, if you will, and had to figure out how to get his family home was the, the challenge that he was up against. The story is just incredible. Made for the movies almost, just for fun. If there were a film version of the story that was going to be made, who would you cast as your great-grandfather, Mr. Wells? Well, I kind of like the idea of Tom Hanks being cast as my grandfather. I mean, you have a kind of a story of a family in jeopardy. He go, travels with his wife and two children, and kind of the dramatic highlight occurs in a place called Riva, which is called Riva del Garda today, the biggest uh, canyon lake in Italy. Uh, it was then Austrian territory. Today, it's, it's Italian territory. And Riva was briefly arrested by Austrian authorities, accused of being a Russian spy and threatened with execution. Fortunately for me and for him, he managed to talk his way out of that. I also have to say, I'm tempted by the idea of a movie, but I'm also tempted by the idea of a video game. I mean, that the story could be turned into a video game as well. There are so many games that are war games out there. This could be a peace game, and it could be kind of a single-person game where the object of the game is to prevent the outbreak of World War I as opposed to, you know, actually fighting it, which yeah, I think it could be interesting. We'll see. I understand there's a romance side of the story. Tell us about that. Well, after the war, 
my great-grandfather, Thomas Wells, became the chairman of Serbian Relief, which was an organization founded to bring humanitarian aid to Serbia, which of course was a war-torn country in the course of the war. And they were trying to bring medical supplies, food, and agricultural uh, equipment to war-torn Serbia. And in the course of that, he met with Queen Maria of Romania, who actually ended up becoming, in a sense, his boss and his friend. He became the honorary consul from Romania to the United States, although he was an American. And there are rumors that he might even have had an affair with Queen Maria of Romania as well. I mean, that's uh, at least according to family lore, that's what may have taken place as well. War does interesting things to relationships. I mean, you have sometimes it tears people apart and sometimes it brings people together. Okay, finally, Chris, where do I find the book and how can I get it? Absolutely. Listeners can find the book An Adventure in 1914 on our website, which is called anadventureinnineteenfourteen.com. It's also available on Amazon and on Kindle as well. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate it. Christopher Kelly is an American history writer based in Seattle and London. You can find links to Chris's website and his books in the podcast notes. Our website at www.cc.org is home and archived to a lot of things World War I, with over 3,700 articles, 2,000 locations listed in our map database, and nearly 1,400 World War I-related events in our National Events Register. It's a great place to explore, and new articles are published weekly. First from the Badger State, Wisconsin. About 200 people gathered on Veterans Day to commemorate 28 Ho-Chunk men known as the Winnebago Indians in 1917. They're from the area surrounding Volksfield National Guard Training Base in Wisconsin. The families of these warriors, known as the descendants of Red Arrow, have met at Volksfield since 1977 to celebrate their service, their memory, and the 32nd Red Arrow Division, which continues today as the 32nd Infantry Brigade Combat Team. Read the story about the ceremony and its World War I origins by following the link in the podcast notes. For the aviation buffs out there, some exciting news coming out of Kentucky. There's a team of enthusiasts that's hard at work restoring the first warplane built in America, the Dayton Wright DH-4. The group's members hope to remind the public of the plane's importance by restoring the DH-4 in time for test flights this coming spring, with plans for air shows across the country and even a trip to France. Read more about the ongoing efforts to get the so-called Liberty Plane flying again by visiting www.cc.org news or following the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz. The centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. So Catherine, what do you have for us this week? Hi, Teo. This week we shared the story of one of the worst accidents of the war, certainly the worst in North America. In the port city of Halifax, Nova Scotia, on December 6, 1917, a ship carrying aid collided with a ship carrying high explosives, causing an explosion and tsunami wave that destroyed the north end of the city. It killed some 2,000 people and injured a further 9,000. At the time, the explosion was the largest human-made blast that the world had experienced, reaching a measured height of 2.25 miles. To make things worse, the explosion was followed by a blizzard that severely restricted efforts to help the city for days. 
Commemorations of this disaster are taking place soon, and you can read more about both the explosion and the upcoming commemorations at the link in the podcast notes. Finally, let's end on a lighter note with some music. An article shared on Facebook this week comes from ClassicFM.com and features a video of a very special and special-looking cello being played. The cello is a long, narrow rectangle, rather than the large, curvaceous instrument we're used to calling a cello. This is a holiday cello, an instrument you can pack up and take away with you so you can still practice when you're away from home. And indeed, it went very far from home as its British owner, Harold Triggs, was sent to the trenches and took the cello with him. He played it in the trenches of Ypres, and he wasn't the only one. There were reportedly other instruments there with him, some made from ammunition boxes and pipes. In that bleak place, people needed music. Decades and decades later, it found its way into the hands of a stringed instrument expert. In the video, cellist Stephen Isserlis plays it for us so we can all hear the music that once filled the war-torn landscape a hundred years ago. And that's it this week for The Buzz. And that's World War I Centennial News for the end of November 1917 and 2017. Our guest this week, Mike Schuster, explaining the growing role of the tank in the war. Jacqueline Farrow and Eddie Bullreese from the Godfrey Triangle Project in Springfield, Massachusetts. Chegg Lowry and Rasan Ekadal telling us about their graphic novel, Soldiers Unknown. Christopher Kelly sharing the story behind the memoir, An Adventure in 1914. Catherine Akey, the show's line producer and the commission's social media director. Special thanks to Eric Marr for his great help in researching our stories. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. Your listening to this podcast is a part of that, and thank you. We want to bring the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes around the country. And, of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. This week's featured website is www.cc.org coin, where you can learn all about the U.S. Mint's 2018 commemorative World War I silver dollar. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn on iTunes and Google Play at WW1 Centennial News, and on Amazon Echo or other Alexa-enabled devices, just say, Alexa, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to share the stories you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. Goodbye, Broadway, hello, friends. We're going to pay our debt to you. I right. I left. I don't you worry.
So, I'm putting on my Matrix trench coat, snapping on my third-generation Dick Tracy Apple Watch, all in costume and set to take in a special showing of All Quiet on the Western Front at my local movie house. So long. <laughs>